With sports, I want to add different elements so it's just not considered like, hey, we're running now. Because unfortunately in team sports, running is associated with we did something wrong, mm. right? So it's punitive. So as long as I make it fun uh, and interesting and varied up and it's not excessive, you know, would I run, you know, segments of 200, 300, 400? Not really. It doesn't, you know, maybe for a soccer player, like I mm -hmm. said, the midfielder example where you have to build up volume or, or a specific rugby player. But most of the time I'm, I'm pretty lenient with those distances. And I even like, you know, as part of a general preparatory phase is like throw the med ball, run onto it, throw the med ball, run onto it, doing segments with throws combined because it does take their mind off the running. They're just chasing oh, yeah. a ball. A tempo run of with short recovery allows for the body to use that hydrogen ions or lactate as a fuel. It allows the body to increase its ability to buffer the waste so that you're not necessarily using that workout to get better at your absolute efforts, but you're supporting the body to be able to withstand those absolute efforts. And when you're in a competitive situation and you're having to do multiple efforts in a single day, you can be more robust, more ready, and can get nearer and nearer that high performance under fatigue and still maintain good mechanics, still be able to buffer that waste and still be able to come back later on throughout the day in that performance and get after it again. That was Derek Hansen and Ryan Banta. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. If you're curious what one of my top five paradigm shifts has been in training and performance the last few years, one answer of those might surprise you. One of those shifts has been moving to herbalism and herbal supplementation as an important part of my total health and performance regimen. You could say I got into it much in the same way I got into perception and reaction-based agility work instead of emphasizing canned, coned, and ladder-based agility work or 505s or pro-agilities. And that was really through being open-minded and making a shift towards natural methods, organic methods versus more manufactured methods and, and ideas. And after really years of drinking way too much caffeine, taking too much pre-workout and seeing my uh, ability to harness adrenaline suffer as a result, amongst other reasons, I gave herbalism a shot uh, and specifically through the herbs of Lost Empire Herbs. I replaced all but creatine in my supplementation routine. From my first dosage of the Phoenix formula, it was my first herb I used, I noticed substantial results immediately. I saw improvements in my strength and power outputs. And you'll see other coaches who also will recommend herbs for performance, things like Shiliagit. And Logan Christopher, CEO of the company, calls what they do performance herbalism, which means they focus on herbs that are so potent and powerful, that means you feel a difference when you take them. This isn't like the Jinko Biloba, the low-grade herbs you're seeing in capsule form at the local drugstore. These are performance herbs. They're 100% natural with no additives, chemicals, or colorings, and you can get extensive information on each herb or formula you purchase there. Lost Empire Herbs offers a 365-day money-back guarantee, so you can get these herbs virtually risk-free. They are founded by three brothers interested in athletic performance, and I'm really happy to have Lost Empire Herbs as a sponsor of this show. So if you're interested in the product and some of the products specifically that I use in my own training and performance regimen, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly to check out those herbs and get 15% off your purchase. So again, head on over to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly for 15% off. All right, let's get on to the show. Welcome to another show. 
Great to have you all here. Today's topic is one that's near and dear to my heart as both an athlete and coach because it's a method that I've realized over the years has been really important to me in reaching my best sprinting and jumping ability. Yet it's also one that is abused frequently with athletes getting thrown way too much volume to the point where they cannot adapt well to speed or power stimuli in their training environment. And that training method is tempo training or submaximal sprint running. For the track and field initiated, uh, most are familiar with it, but it, it tempo running or submaximal sprint training and oftentimes used prescription in track and field might be eight by 200 meters at 70% effort on two minutes rest or three minutes rest, or perhaps five by 300 meters. In team sports, this type of method is often used as well, just oftentimes with shorter distances, a higher number of runs and even shorter rest times. But basically it's just running with incomplete recoveries at a submaximal pace. And as we all know, this method is very frequently abused by a lot of coaches I've seen both in the world of team sport training as well as track and field especially on like the the high school or club level athletes do just monumental amounts of running and sometimes you ask well what are these athletes adapting to uh, this has caused a shift or a pendulum swing to the point where a lot of programs have completely abandoned submaximal running tony holler's been on this podcast a couple times and his program has abandoned tempo training tony has a lot of awesome sprinters and gets great results i've loved having him on I always, I just like talking to, with any training tool, I just like uh, seeing it in context and in what situations is it optimal. Ross Jeffs was on the show and talked about how elastic sprinters can use these longer rhythm-based runs. And as an elastic athlete myself, I can say that I have actually thrived off of appropriate tempo training, not just for speed endurance, but even just speed and jumping itself. So with that said, I wanted to bring two guests on who have a ton of experience in this specific training modality of tempo and know how to use it well, know how to use it appropriately, and know how to use it in context of not only the sport or the team, but also the individual athletes. And that is Ryan Banta and Derek Hansen. Ryan and Derek were on this podcast a long time ago, back in the original 20 episodes. And I'm excited to have them back because they just have a wealth of knowledge on this topic. Ryan is a track coach with more than 19 years of experience and is the author of the Sprinter's Compendium. He's had tremendous success as a high school track coach in the state of Missouri, and he's a frequent contributor to many top platforms in athletic performance. Derek is an international sports performance consultant, and he's been working with athletes since 1988. He's had tremendous mentors, including the late Charlie Francis. And after a long career as a university strength coach, as well as a track and field coach, Derek now serves as a performance consultant to numerous professional teams across North America, as well as in uh, major NCAA Division I programs. On the show today, Derek and Ryan are going to get into the use and the benefit of tempo training, uh, as well as the prescriptions they utilize in the scopes of track and field, as well as team sport. So whether you're a track coach, a speed coach, a team sport strength and conditioning coach, or just interested in athletic performance in general, this episode has a lot to offer. And I know you guys are really going to enjoy this one. I certainly did. And anytime you can get two guests with nearly 50 years of experience on and heavily experience in the topic we're talking about, you know it's going to be an awesome conversation. So let's get to this podcast with Ryan Banta and Derek Hansen. Guys, thanks for being back on the show. It's been a it's been a while for both of you, and so I'm really excited to have you guys together for this topic. And so I'll start with like an icebreaker question for this one. Uh, someone put this out on Twitter a while ago, and they said, this is one of those generalized questions, so of course it never shakes out like this, but it's fun for thought's sake. But if you're had to, if you running a sprint program for building um, absolute speed, or maybe the 100-meter dash, we could say, 
uh, and you had to pick uh, either doing strength training or tempo running outside of your actual like max velocity specific short sprint practice for building that speed, what would you pick and why? And we'll we'll start there, and then we can talk situationally. But just from generality's sake, outside of specific speed training, picking either weight room or longer tempo sprints. Brian, you want to go first? I'll go first. I mean, obviously, tempo would be the way that I would go. You know, the weight room, in my opinion, is a you know ancillary thing, and one of the first things I slice. You know, when I look at my workouts, the one non-starter takeaway item would be the running. The running is the most important thing and most specific to what I do in my sport. So that's the thing that has to be protected, whether it's max velocity, tempo, or something else. The weight room would be one of the last things that I would cut, but it certainly would get cut before the running. Oh my God, that was so brief, Ryan. Jeez. (laughs) Okay. I wasn't ready. I wasn't mentally ready. I thought you were going to go on for a while. Um, I'd have to agree uh, with Ryan. I would say if I'm focused on, you know, running faster, then the running has to be part of that. It obviously at different velocities and different volumes and lengths and all that. It just gives me much more flexibility to manipulate the program the way I want to and just react a lot quicker. Whereas if you're in a weight room scenario, there's all these there's all these things that you need to bridge between the weight room and the the track. And if if, if that's the offer you're giving me then it's clearly going to be um, some more running at different velocities for tempo running and how I can be creative with the volumes and the just the way, the, the, the frequency, the patterns and all that that I could do in that setup versus, you know, again, the weight room for me is very, very general too. It's not, it's not this, oh, I'm going to use this exercise today and then I'm going to switch it to this exercise because I'm really smart. It's more like, okay, let's just chunk that as well. So that I so I could have something usable on the track. So I just I find it's a little more of a blunt instrument, whereas I can be more precise with the running. Cool, and I, I'm excited to jump into how you will use that precision in the uh, tempo assignments as we get through this conversation. In light of that question, though, uh, I think the follow up is okay. Like if sprinting is clearly maximal, and speed being the most coveted thing in sport as well, and lots of maximal efforts on. The field and sprinting and team sports and obviously track you're going maximally so what is the value of a submaximal a 60 a 70 percent effort when sport is carried out i think that would be like the biggest objection and i think i think industry moves in pendulums right so what would the value be for athletes who are trying to run as fast as they can to slow down and do slow higher volume slower tempo movements or running that's <laughs> not movements but running okay yeah very good question there are so many reasons why you would explore the whole velocity curve or spectrum. And, and just to start, I think, you know, just this idea that you can go submaximally to control technique, which, which involves a lot of relaxation and a lot of control. And, and just this idea that we don't even know what maximal is in relation to effort and performance. Like maybe maximal is uh, submaximal. I, I know I'm sounding weird here, but if I, yeah, I'm a horrible golfer, but if I go out and swing a club maximally, bad stuff's going to happen, right? I may not hit it that far. I will not hit it that far and I may hurt myself. So I think that same approach can apply to sprinting or anything, throwing something, whatever. So, so we have to agree on what is maximal, I think, to figure out uh, where we want to be. Is that your best time? 
Is that maximal effort? Is that related to some wearable that you have on? And until we can get to that point, understanding what metrics we're using, and we can't have a meaningful discussion. So that's the one thing. The other is working at different velocities obviously gives you some flexibility around even the effect you're going to have in terms of like energy systems and uh, building foundations around the athlete, whether it is general fitness, whether it is, like I said, the relaxation piece, like teaching people to turn muscles off versus on. When I do sled pulls and stuff like that, uh, resisted stuff, essentially I classify that as a submaximal exercise because it slows things down. Submaximal in relation to actual sprinting, it could be maximal in relation to like a power movement or um, maybe a strength movement based on recruitment. But in terms of slowing things down and giving my athletes time to think about positioning, posture, you could classify it as submaximal as well. And it obviously the velocity slower. And I think that's where you're getting some of the advantages of heavier sled pulling isn't necessarily strength. It's going to be other qualities that we can't even quantify in terms of technique and uh, positioning and confidence. So uh, I just think there's so much value to be had. And like, I could say, okay, we're going to do four by 30, you know, four by 60, and then, you know, two by 100. Well, I could run that a bazillion different ways to base, based on velocity, recovery, technical cues that I'm giving the athlete. So if, if, if people think that like I get into these arguments with people, Oh, Charlie Francis was all about running fast all the time. I was like, no, he wasn't. Like if you actually spent time with him, he was very precise about what he would get out of a specific run, you know, take it a little easier, go a little fast, you know, whatever. But that's what good coaching is. It's, it's like, I would assume it's the same as like somebody throws a bunch of potatoes and carrots and, you know, a slab of beef. And then a cook can divvy that up however they want, depending on the audience, depending on how he's feeling, you know, depending what, you know, is, is, is he cooking with gas, charcoal, you know? So I think you have to open your mind up to all of the possibilities, depending on the context and the individual in front of you. Right. Yeah. And I think the other thing that we talk about is building a robust athlete. So not only are we talking about confidence, but we're also talking about connective tissues. We're talking about bone density. We're discussing this idea of preparing some of those connective tissues to support the work later. The other part of it is, is, you know, and I mean, where you place it, you know, what are you going to do the day after a competition and it's in the middle of the week? How do you handle that? Do you do nothing? You know, do you work on something? What do you do? You know? And so like for me, a tempo day after a midweek competition makes a lot of sense for shakeout purposes, right? So it, I feel like that's something that helps recovery and restoration by doing that type of work. You know, you look at mechanics, like Derek was talking about, you can cue some things at slower speeds that will allow the athlete to then pick them up at faster speeds. I see a lot of videos being posted of people running 20 meter, 30 meter flies, all out 40s, and they're fast but they look terrible. And if that's the only thing that the athlete is being taught, you're creating a recipe for disaster. I look at it like putting a NOS on a high-performance vehicle. You can only punch that nitrogen into that engine so many times without having that engine blow up. You know, And so when you're hyper-clocking these things, that's great from a contractile perspective in terms of firing patterns, but might not be great in a contractile perspective for the strength of the tissues because they haven't had a chance to become more fibrous, more protected, more dense. 
you know, the other thing we look at is, you know, there's a lot of non absolute speed, however you want to quantify that in running, especially outside of, you know, the 100 meter dash and a tempo run of with short recovery allows for the body to use that hydrogen ions or lactate as a fuel. It allows the body to increase its ability to, you know, buffer the waste so that you're not necessarily using that workout to get better at your absolute efforts, but you're supporting the body to be able to withstand those absolute efforts. And when you're in a a competitive situation and you're having to do multiple efforts in a single day, you can be more robust, more ready, and can get nearer and nearer that high performance under fatigue and still maintain good mechanics, still be able to buffer that waste and still be able to come back later on throughout the day in that performance and get after it again. And if you think about, and Joel, I know you're really into this, but these very elaborate warm up and cool down routines and things like that, that's work, you know? And so if the athlete only sees this one crazy high end intense effort and there's nothing to support that crazy high end intense effort with what I would consider when we hear sub maximal work, everybody thinks, well, you're not giving a full effort, but you might be giving a full effort in a different way, right? Being able to tolerate being in a workout that is built to make it intolerant, you know, being comfortable with un- being uncomfortable, you know, and, and being able to still survive that and, and, and to feel that. And we've been in a situation which we're talking offline where I haven't been able to do nearly the amount of work due to virtual days and rain and conditions. And we've had more things go on this year due to a lack of general fitness than I've ever had in my entire career as a coach. And part of that's lack of preparation at submaximal work, which we traditionally do in the preseason or in the winter in the off seasons. You said something there. Uh, I have a few notes uh, based off what you were saying. Well, the first thing I'll just make a comment is I like, I think it was uh, Keba uh, Tolbert uh, who had said like in one of his old maybe presentations or things I was listening to, he talked about the main army and the supporting army, like all the people who are, you got your army firing the the giant gun and then the people, you know, carrying the ammo to the, like there, you have to have both to do your best and, or to win the war, I guess you could say, whatever your analogy is. So I, I really like it from a supporting perspective. And I think that it's easy, especially to, it, it does make it easy. It, you know, we talk a lot of crap about periodization, but it's also, I feel like it's very easy to be like, look, like we did more work here. <laughs> it's like, what do you, I mean, the nervous system doesn't taper. And that Christian Thibodeau has talked about that. And like the Bulgarian Olympic lifters, they just did max lifting pretty much all the time and they didn't really need to taper. So maybe it gives you another knob to play with too. I mean, I, I never liked the idea of doing like a lot of work that's unnecessary or a lot of junk and getting rid of the junk. And now you run faster because you did, which I think is par for the course. But I do feel like it gives you more knobs to increase novelty and you're going to feel fresher here. There's just some different knobs to play with, if that makes sense. I don't know if you guys have a comment on that. I do. And I would say you could even take it farther with uh, Jonas's idea where it's faster alone, further together. So there is this idea that if we're going fast right away, right away, well, yeah, you're going to be at a very elite step, but how long can you maintain that or sustain that? You know, a different Tony, Tony Wells, he would have these three or four weeks and then a huge amount of recovery built in because even he who has all these record holders in the short, short sprints, especially indoors, he knew that that couldn't be sustained forever because it's like you can only ride that for so long without the supportive effort. So his hack 
wasn't so much the tempo work. It was just providing these massive periods of basically not doing those things or recycling previous efforts. And so that idea of, you know, faster alone, but you're just not going to get as far, which basically builds off that, you know, like you said, this theory of periodization of maximizing the different bodies adaptations in a crescendo to bring some sort of peak of the global fitness of the athlete, which includes obviously the best bang for your buck for the neurological system too, when you need it the most with everything else in that support, you don't want your army to go so far into Moscow. And then all of a sudden you've stretched your supply line and it's a thousand miles and you've got nothing to support that. You know, you're too far away from the other supportive attributes of your war effort that you've made these gains, but now you might've destroyed your opportunity because you didn't solidify all the other stuff that's supportive behind it. Derek, do you have anything? Yeah, I, I, I don't mind having volume in there for the sake of having it, because I think, I think on some level it could dilute intensity, uh, but that's not a bad thing. Like if you have enough volume in there so that people aren't, you know, reaching velocities all the time that could be injurious. So I think you're trying to temper things sometimes by adding volume, which again, feeds into the supportive nature, you know, which again is very difficult to quantify, but knowing we have it in there, we know that it's going to keep a base level of fitness that will make us go longer and have longer careers. Whereas if we're ultra specific, you know, we can see that running into problems. And I, I, I know people will bring in like Bulgarian weightlifting and we don't have all the, the information there. And who knows how many people were injured seriously that we never saw and they just threw them in the junk pile. That's who survived. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, it's very difficult to use those examples, especially in our, our environments, um, you know, with working with high school kids. And so I think there is, there is value in having stuff in your program to fill time and space. Like, you know, if you guys are like, you guys must be movie buffs too, right? Sometimes there's stuff in a movie just to kind of take you to the next big scene and it's just filling time and it's letting you kind of relax before the next big action scenes come to, because if it, if, if the whole movie is just action, it's not going to be as um, effective, impactful. So I think, you know, and same in music. So I, I think there's a lot of reasons to have volume, whether it's tempo or circuits or whatever it might be to, to provide some context. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to talk to you about two units that Simply Faster now has out that are excellent for training data collection in measuring bar speeds, sprint metrics, limb speeds, and more. The first is the VMAX Pro. If you're interested in barbell tracking technology that is affordable for the individual athlete in the garage gym, but yet is accurate enough to be trusted by professional teams, then you might be interested in the VMAX Pro. The VMAX Pro is a tiny sensor that attaches to the barbell or even the body to help with lifting and jump training metrics. It'll give you immediate feedback for jumps, lifts, and even measure the motion of the bar in 3D. It includes a travel pouch and the associated app works on both Android and iOS devices. You can auto-regulate with precision with the VMAX Pro. The second unit is the Muscle Lab IMU. If you want to take your movement training to the next level, then the IMU is something you would definitely want to look into as it's a pocket-sized sensor that can attach anywhere on the body and deliver research-grade motion real-time. With it, you can collect ground contact times during sprints, limb speeds for jumping and throwing, and even support return-to-play metrics. 
The sensor fuses with the rest of the Muscle Lab sensor system for even deeper insights. You can improve your movement data and get measurement that matters today with the Muscle Lab IMU unit. You can improve the depth of your workout metrics with these two pieces of technology. And if you're interested, you can head on over to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Check out their online store where you can find these pieces and improve the depth of your training metrics today. Let's get on back to the show. I really like that. One of the things that um, I'm going to have this article uh, that'll go on the Just Play Sports website soon, and then I'll follow up with a podcast with Sam Weiss, who's uh, written some biomechanical stuff. And he's uh, a track coach, but he's also in like acupuncture and a lot of um, like martial arts and uh, Chinese philosophy and those types of things. And it's just a, like there's day and night. There's you know, there's light and dark. Like you, it's I, I always like taking um, training and then bringing it out to just further things we just see in life. Period. So maybe this will be my next question because I think this is interesting. Is I, I like Derek how you your definition of submaximal was basically just something that's slower that can be almost more mindful in a way. And I think about. Like the micro is the macro too. The, the way you set up even a week, even if you weren't going to taper, I, I like even having um, like those, those submaximal efforts throughout the week to, to have the rhythm of the week. And like, you know, like Ryan, you said, after you have a meet, you come back and do tempo. Back when I was coaching my first college gig 10 years ago, uh, we would do tempo on Mondays just because I felt like it was just better. Just rather than getting right into speed on Monday, we do tempo on Monday and then hit our big speed day on Tuesday, just in the off season, just because how to just see, plus those kids on the weekend were not always coming in on Monday with the best, you know, the best tank. Uh, so that was just a nice way to mitigate that. It's like, a, it was the ultimate buffer, really. I don't want to get too confused. So I'm going to ask you guys this is with the whole, like, I guess, a supportive, uh, a specific, uh, a common thing that would be said would be, Hey, uh, well, we want to make athletes, give them the engine. We want to give them the capacity uh, but let's do general strength circuits um, instead. And I I do this sometimes too. I'll have uh, sometimes instead of my tempo days, I'll have a day with you know med ball and general body weight or some extreme isometrics and those things. And I like that option, that dial. But what do you guys think of that idea? And I know it'll be said too, like maybe the short, like muscle driven, high compression person, you know, like would do maybe more of that versus tempo running. But your thoughts on building structure and capacity through circuits and things versus like the slower submaximal running yeah i mean there's certainly uh, scenarios where that works well or it's it's the the better trade-off i know I, I work with like ice hockey players and teams and because of the orientation of skating you know your pelvis tends to flop forward more and you have uh, muscles shorten in areas that don't allow you to do the upright running as easy so whenever we had ice hockey players do upright running they would complain of back pain or hamstrings or this or that right so uh, we would come up with alternatives to replace that uh, ideally i would you know i'm i'm a traditionalist probably like you guys i would love to, for them to have done the running but it just didn't work in that scenario so i think it's nice to have backup plans and and alternatives that you can drop in you know i'm not you know i have when i send out tempo programs for people i have like okay this is what you do if you're in the pool this is what you do if you're on the rowing machine this is what you do if you're on the bicycle right and it's a little different in terms of the work to rest ratios are they okay yeah but I, ultimately that's just a replacement until they can get back to running uh, again and i, I you know you kind of just sort of like okay do this and you just grin and bear it and just hope they get some residual effect that carries over to the running and, and that includes like treadmill running too which isn't quite the same so yeah 
yeah, I mean, you have some alternatives, you know, don't, don't live and die by them, but certainly have some so that you can move them in for specific uh, scenarios, right? Yeah, the BCDE workouts are critical when you do have somebody injured. And then you also have to take into the nature of where is the injury located and what are they capable of doing? And not having that stuff set up ahead of time is, in my opinion, pretty dangerous. Obviously, you know, everybody's injury and their situation, their pain level, what happened, what took place is going to be different. But having it a template, if you will, of the things that you can take to your athletes immediately when they get hurt is great, obviously, from a management and a logistical perspective, but it's also great for the athlete's confidence. You know, I always look at it like the scene in Pulp Fiction where, you know, you've got Quentin Tarantino and, you know, Samuel Jackson are freaking out because they accidentally killed this guy. And what are we going to do? And we're at this place, you know, or sorry, uh, John Travolta. They're at Quentin Tarantino's house. And, you know, he tells Marcellus Wallace says, I'm calling in the wolf. And then, you know, Samuel Jackson says, well, mother, that's all you had to say, you know, and it's like one of those deals where it's like, then now they know everything's taken care of. So when I have an athlete injured, like we had a situation happen at a track meet and the trainer gave her the complete wrong information. Oh, you just got to keep stretching it. You got to keep it loose, do this. And I'm like, you're done. I pulled the kid aside and said, you're done for the day. I said, you're absolutely not to stretch it for 48 hours. And this is the program that you need to do with the ice bath. You're not to use a pressure because they all got the guns. Now the Theragun, I'm like, don't use a Theragun. If you're going to do anything light massage, you know, the next day ice bath, the, the rotation of painkillers, don't take this, take this. If you're going to do it, you know, all these kind of things to get them through the weekend so they don't do anything crazy before they actually see our medical professional at our high school who's really, really good, who can provide all the different modalities and exercises that he wants to do. And once he clears that athlete to be with me, then I've got my, you know, deep water pool workout. I've got my bike workout. I've got, and the thing is, is it's going to be, facility dependent as well, you know, so you've got to make sure whatever that kind of alternative tempo work. Like I used to hate battle ropes when anytime I saw somebody doing battle ropes, I just thought this is just, what is the purpose of this? This is the stupidest thing. And then I realized, well, it's not good for making you like really powerful and strong. In my opinion, it's certainly not specific to a lot of things you would do in sport, but if the athlete can't run because they're in a boot you know, or they've got some sort of severe lower leg injury. I'm like, that can be a replacement for tempo work to get the heart rate up, to keep the fitness there, to keep the body composition there where we're not gaining weight because of inactivity. That can be a nice blend to when they eventually are able to be mobile, mobile and hostile again. And so I think that it's really important to think about the specific injury, but have a template. Think about the facilities. And then think about the realities of a kid when they're away from you. You've got to make sure you give them some sort of instructions, even if it's, how can I say this, more limited than you would normally do, just because you want to be very clear on what not to do to prepare them. And then once they've been evaluated, then implement those templates for tempo that can allow the athlete to maintain some relative ability of fitness. Got it. So it sounds like you guys, um, and this is kind of will launch the next question is when you can you guys are going to pick tempo generally over like circuits like use circuits if it's you know bad weather you're kind of hurt you're dinged up but if given the choice you generally will say look like we're going to do 
you know, the set amount of tempo days in the week, like if it's two or three, like you wouldn't, if the athlete's healthy and the weather's fine and you don't have to train in the basement, you would pick tempo over circuits for the most part. I don't like to make generalized statements, but but that's kind of what you guys are saying. Well, and I would say to add on to that, Joel, I think it's surface dependent as well. So if you don't have an indoor track or a consistent in, environment in terms of being able to be outside all the time, if I go Monday and we go hard for however that looks and we're on tile, which is what my high school looks like, it's all tile. There's only limited pieces of carpet. And even then, what are we talking about? Mm-hmm. How, how protective is that? Then the second day I would choose some sort of circuit that wasn't running dependent mm-hmm. just because I'm trying to be conscientious of the more common occurrence injury, which is a stress reaction or severe shin splints or something like that. But if I have a soft surface, then yeah, I would much rather do the running versus something else. Yeah. And, and even, you know, I agree with Ryan battle rope banta, but um, I would say that uh, even outside I'm doing both. Like we're doing tempo runs with med ball circuits in between sets, and okay. mixing things up to try to get the best of everything. Right. So I don't think it's an either or proposition. I think you can mix things up and even in the indoor scenario with the harder surfaces, we may throw down a mat or a yoga mat. People do some drills on the spot or running on the spot and then do the circuit. So, you know, there's some flexibility there. Yeah. The thing that makes me think about, I would say my, my pendulum is a little bit of the influence of, and this, when, when I was coaching 10 years ago, I didn't do this, make any account, account for this at all. But now it's swung a little bit more towards maybe that muscle driven athlete who's like really compressing or. I don't know, like, like very like high tension and, and kind of that ball of fast switch muscle athlete. I am inclined to have them do a few more circuits and keep the tempo volume lower. But then I think about like, I mean, you could tell me this Derek more than anybody, but you know, Charlie Fran, like Ben Johnson is when people say, don't do a lot of extra running, don't do a lot of extra tempo. Like that muscle compressor is like a Ben Johnson athlete. And then to my knowledge, he probably did the tempo just as a lot of other athletes did right in Charlie's system. So I'm just curious on your thoughts on that, like an athlete who might be are there athletes who are more or less or looking at the volumes, let's just say, is there considerations with the type of athlete, their you know, weight, their elasticity, um, anything like that? Yeah, I think so. Again, it, it gets us into this, this position of like trying to type cast people and saying, this is what I do for them. And, and uh, that's only going to end up being uh, a disaster in the long run. Like you have to have some flexibility and um, you know, Ben Johnson would go for longer runs as part of his warm up early and do a gradual thing. So he had to have some fitness there. And so it's so easy to say like, well, he just squatted 600 pounds and that's why he's faster, or, or he just took steroids. And there's so much more nuance in there mm-hmm. that we don't know, or most people don't know. So I think it's, 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 I don't know. It's just that simplification of the brain where we're like, what did he do to give me the three things he did? And I'm going to do that. And hopefully I'll be like him. And it's, it's just a trap we fall into, right? Like, you know, do I wear a mask? Do I not wear a mask? Like, well, sometimes I will, sometimes, you know, like it. So I think it's, it's very difficult for us to, to really nail down the key variables because you, again, and this is why it goes back to like, you need some experience and some wisdom around this. Like you you have to have trial and error a lot of things to get to the point where you're like, okay, it's not that simple. It's, I I have to really think about this. And I think, you know, Ryan and I are old enough that we've been through and made some mistakes and, and tried to simplify, you know, be the smart guy and the smart guy in the room and go like, okay, 
I've got it. It's either this or this. And, and it doesn't work that way. And especially if you've been married a long time, like Ryan and I, uh, you know, it doesn't work that way. Like there's always, everything is gray. Everything is really gray. So I think, you know, that, that, that's at least the takeaway I want people to have is like, I know you want us to answer a whole bunch of questions here in this podcast, but you know, we're going to give you some examples and share our experiences. And it's usually going to be like, you got to figure it out yourself. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think it always, it, it's definitely very popular to offer extremely simple solutions. Um, but I think anyone who undertakes those simple solutions will find that there's going to become exemptions right off the bat that you have to figure out how to deal with. And it's easiest to often just say, give an excuse to why that person didn't adapt or whatever, or even in the rehab and therapy, I think it's really easy too. like this, you know, the magic Theragun should fix everything. No, I'm just kidding. I don't think anyone's saying that, but you know, right. I hope not at least. Yeah. It's well, like, it's hashtag variants. That's a great mm-hmm. word because everything changes all the freaking time and you got to be ready to, to shuck and drive with that change. Right. You know? Right. Well, I talk about that, like, you know, with, with happiness, you expect that happiness is going to be like, I'm a big dumb animal. And so I'm like, well, I did this on this day and that made my wife really happy. So I'm going to do that again. And it's like, well, that didn't work the next time, you know? And so you're, you're chasing this adaptative moving target. So as these things get, and it's different at the beginning of the season than it is at the end Mm -hmm. of the season, it's different depending on the athlete's competitive life, you know, like what's their competitive age. But I would say in general, what I do like, Joel, um, to take a little bit of a different tilt than Derek, is I like to use some of these things as your guidepost to start, right? So if I had an athlete who I felt very comfortable that they're a compressive type athlete, then, you know, with my tempo, my tempo is going to be at a lower intensity, you know, and we're probably not going to go as long either, you know, and then as because I want that high, low variation because of what the how I, how can I say this? I feel like the effort that it takes for them to do this highly neural thing because they're really way out there is much more uh, exhaustive than it would be for maybe a quick twitch oxidative athlete who's a little bit longer and leaner and tends to be better, you know, upright running than being in acceleration. So I'm making those evaluations. And then I would say, if I have a compressive athlete, then yeah, my length of my efforts are going to be shorter. My intensities are going to be lower and it's going to look much more like a high low day, but I don't take that stuff out because I feel like there's a lot of value there, you know, for one thing. And and we've talked about this and Derek is the one who gave me this information that he did get from Charlie is this idea of improving that circulatory system, you know, is a benefit from doing some of that work. And if you're in Canada and it's freaking cold all the time, you know, they need to have the ability to warm up their tissues, get the body ready and do all that kind of stuff to survive the conditions, especially for most of us, whatever we see as cold, you know, that's different for Texas than it might be for Alberta. But the principle is is somewhat the same. The other thing is, is I want to know after that really hardcore effort, I want to know what we've got the next day. And the only way that I can use the diagnostic tools is to see them run, to see them move and say, okay, did we have something that didn't go well? Is there an injury? Is there a consequence to the work that we had? And I certainly would rather see that in a tempo session and address it than the next time I'm going all out with a compressive type of athlete that I feel like is using a lot more effort to get to those same speeds on the tissues. So I always look at a compressive athlete as their motor is coming from the muscle, right? And the, the 
you know, the posterior chain athlete, it's a much more neurological system. And I feel like that neurological system seems to, in my opinion, to respond a lot better than the hydraulics, which is the tissue. Ryan. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, I definitely, uh, I really resonate with a lot of the things you said and yeah, coaching the athlete in front of you, um, is, is such a big thing, especially too, when, yeah, some athletes are just going to res- just seem to enjoy it more and the tempo than others. And I know culturally too, the, the cultural impact on the type of training program has played a big role. And as I've noticed through observing different programs, um, so yeah, one of the things that, that I've felt has been just seeing how an athlete processes that workout emotionally and even looking at like the look on their face. Are they, you know, like, is there, are they straining to hit a time? Are they, how are they, pro, are they able to relax? Like Derek, you had mentioned the relaxation element. And so I, I almost look at it on some level too, you know, there's the te- the way you absorb the technique, but I also like watching an athlete's like, like just general mannerisms as they process the workout and how are they dealing with fatigue emotionally? And I feel like that goes a long way in how are they going to, how is their body going to um, process that from a recovery standpoint and a technical standpoint and everything that goes with that. So I, I want to actually get this in, I want to actually get this into like team sports stuff quickly here too, because I know um, not everyone listening to this as a track coach and a lot of what I want to talk about, there's also interplays between track and uh, team sport as well. And so maybe Derek, let's start with you. Cause I know you do a lot of work with team sports and that preparation, but uh, with, Team sport, I know it's different, a field sport versus a football or a court sport, but at what point do you feel like the sport has taken care of, I guess you could say, the tempo component? And when you're writing speed programs, do you, um, how often do you get into tempo given what a team sport athlete is doing in the course of their actual play? And so how does that kind of shake out for you? Yeah, I, I, I would suspect that um, people would fall on like back on GPS and say like, okay, they ran in this velocity band for this long and and I, I, you know, that's interesting. I think when you look at the the distribution of, of velocities in, in, say, a football game versus a soccer game versus a basketball game, um, obviously most of it's low velocity work. Um, so you, you would have to say that if they're practicing, you know, every day of the week when they're not competing, um, there's going to be a good amount of distance covered. And I think uh, if you're, if that's in season or a preseason, your, your, your tempo volume will, or whatever you do to supplement on that end would be uh, more recovery based, I would say, and you wouldn't have to work on creating, you know, specific adaptations for the aerobic system or anything else. So I think you just have to, you, you might want to lean on that information, that data once in a while, just to go like, okay. That's typically the distribution. It doesn't change that often. So I think you know that, okay, for if we play a game, like I was work, working with a Bundesliga soccer team and their midfielder would run, you know, 12 kilometers. And you're like, well, that's pretty good. <laughs> like yeah, that's I, a long know, way. Two games a week. Um, and uh, so do we have to do more? So we would push more towards the speed side um, and try to fill those buckets, right? So I think you really have to look at the specific circumstances and, you know, maybe certain positions in certain sports will have uh, certain requirements taken care of. And then if you have people who are second stringers or coming off the bench or subbing in for the last 20 minutes of the, of the, the soccer match, then you can start filling, you know, their uh, tempo bucket a little more to, to keep them even keeled with everybody else. 
So that, that's been my experience. It's very rare that I get into an off-season period where we can really do a lot of that. Because if you're looking at pro sports, college sports probably different, but in pro sports, you know, when they get their time off, they want their time off. And so prescribing running uh, as, you know, temple running is not the most attractive thing. So you're trying to be very careful about what you prescribe in the off season for compliance reasons, at least at the pro level. So, um, you know, you are leaning on that volume of practice uh, that, that the football coach or the soccer coach is going to prescribe and go like, okay, that's good. Let's fill all these other gaps with the strength, you know, the strength training, the, the sprint training, uh, maybe some some sort of plyometrics or throws or circuits and all that. But but I would say in a collegiate setting, maybe it's more interesting because you have more time in the off season to start going, OK, I know that as uh, as a for a soccer team, I want the midfielders running at least this much per tempo session uh, versus the goalkeeper. Right. But the goalkeeper and the pitcher in in, in, in baseball or softball still has to have quite a bit of aerobic work done. Um, whether it's body composition or circulation to keep them warm throughout the game when they're sitting or uh, on the bench. So, uh, you know, it, it is, again, a complicated process of going through each sport and understanding how much of what, you know, tempo work they need based on what their their practice or their games fulfilling versus what you can provide. And it, it's not easy. It's definitely very complicated. And you have to have the coaching staff on board to allow you to do that or to give you that time. And sometimes we would have a soccer game and then the game would end and I would be in charge of working with the players that didn't play that much. And we would do tempo running and things to, to fill those, uh, those gaps that they didn't accomplish by having the game. Whereas in practice, everybody's practicing about the same amount. So just understanding those complexities and those differences by sport and by individual in the sport is very important. Ryan, do you have anything there? Well, I think that, you know, you know, you look at rugby, same idea in terms of you'd be amazed at the, you know, the inner pieces in rugby, how much those guys who are usually set in the scrum are actually running as well. And a nice balance for the starters and the non-starters is good. I think also the thing is you got to think about you know, what do they lack? You know, do they move well at high speeds versus not? You know, one of the things that if they are getting the tempo work done, you know, I may spend more time with the folks that don't work as well at high speed, at high speed, just to be able to make sure that we're cleaning up their mechanics and, and doing those type of things and providing interventions um, in that way. One of the things that we were going to talk about, and we had a little bit of a break there, is this idea of why have people moved so far away from tempo? And I don't know if you want me to address that. Yeah, so we look at like, you know, Clyde Hart being the probably one of the most extreme examples of a successful high volume tempo guy. And when people see that, they go, well, that is way outside the realm of possibility for me and my athletes. Well, that might be true. And so one of the things is, is to say that might not be the most ideal thing for most athletes in most programs, especially in high school. There's nothing wrong with saying that. But then saying that that has no value is also just as incorrect and, and is just as problematic for me. And I think one of the things is in this year of coronavirus is we've lacked a competitive season. And so coaches are scratching their itch with lack of competitive season, with going out there and researching information and looking for people. And as you mentioned while we were offline, talking about the debate that Tony and I had and, you know, Tony is, is 
has done a really good job of promoting his system and his ideas and the values of his system, which are really attractive, which is make kids like track and field. And the one thing that a lot of kids don't like about track and field, it seems to be, um, how can I say this, busy work. Most students don't like busy work. And so you have to understand like, well, what's the purpose of this? If it's so purpose creates it an idea that it isn't busy work. So how do we get that done? Well, they need to know what you're doing, why you're doing it. And you don't need to give them a biology lesson, but you need to have real tenets to what you're doing in your program. And that's the problem. I think a lot of coaches don't feel comfortable with their lack of knowledge. They're like, well, if that sucks and kids don't like it, then I'm going to throw it out because I don't know why it had any value in the first place versus someone like myself. It's like, well, here are the boom, 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 things that I believe that this tempo training has purpose, intention, and value. And so this is why I have it in my program. But where people get it wrong is they typically start with these large numbers that are very nonspecific. And I would rather work mm-hmm. with what I feel comfortable with is the minimum effective dosage of everything. Yes. And then in and then build a more robust athlete through repetition and maybe an increase in volume as you move through the season, as opposed to starting with this monster volume and just like a train moving your way <laughs> down the tracks. I don't like that. I would rather use the minimum amount of all of it and, and expand it to the point where I feel like we're still getting positive responses. And then when we don't, that's when we shut the workout down. That's when we stop the reps. We don't just keep plowing through because it's busy work. Yeah. I like the idea of not just like what you just said. Like I think a lot of, and I think this is why that is why pendulums swing hard is we got with when so many coaches are just treating tempo volume as just, hey, we need to run enough. We need to we need to make sure we do enough running. That's when stuff can really get sideways. And it's just you miss all the right. nuances of what. And that's why I asked you guys right off the bat, where what are the benefits of tempo? And actually, one of the things I forgot to throw in there was I think Charlie had said Francis had said it decreased like the electrical resistance in the muscle, which I've been meaning to actually test that out with my like ARPWAY DC uh, stim unit because that can kind of give you a metric there but i i just i know i feel more loose and relaxed and fluid after i do that type of work and i feel like my athletes impacts them in a similar way so yeah i think just pendulums get and then i do think it falls into like that like like derek you said everything's in the gray and people just think when you think we need to get the volume in we need to run enough well there's a lot of gray in there that you need to account for when it's like enough running so uh, I hear I, I'm definitely a minimal type as well. And we can chat about that. I do want to get on like practical. How do we actually lay this out? How much volume do you use? Where do you start? Um, Derek, I did want to ask you one last thing about the team sport element was um, this tempo, given all the change of directions and, and those, do you try to be have a specificity with the tempo at all? Do you do direction chains up backs like or is it just hey same but or just, you know, just be, let's be different than your sport a little bit. Let's just get this in in this context. Uh, what are your thoughts on you know chasing any degree of specificity and that type tempo type thing for a team sport athlete in the supportive sense? I would say uh, most of the time I'm trying to do what they're not doing, which is tax the energy system in a way that doesn't create that peripheral stress. Um, but having said that, if I know people are getting ready for a training camp and that they're going to do whatever a conditioning test that has change of direction. Um, maybe, you know, get into a glycolytic, you know, kind of state. Um, and I know that training camp itself is pretty rigorous in terms of weeding people out. We will have a phase that leads them into that, but I'm, you know, we're doing shuttles, um, for certain durations and, and different types of direction changes as part of that at low, 
I would say low to moderate intensity so that the velocities aren't uh, going to create injury risk. But yeah, I would uh, almost as a stress inoculation type of thing, like we're going to do this because this is what's going to happen in your training camp. Uh, and then once we're past that, and then they're into regular practice and gameplay and all that, we go back to linear, um, less exposure to those things that are they're doing a lot of already. And 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 also like Ryan had said, I'm always thinking of surfaces too. So if they're always on turf, um, you know maybe we get them to do stuff on grass. If you know sometimes we might get them to run on a track surface because it's a more elastic than being on turf all the time or grass all the time. So. I think there's a lot of elements that you can uh, involve that either take them away from their sport or kind of bring them back to their sport if they're not playing their sport. And COVID, you know, the, the initial lockdown in COVID was a good example where I had people doing more agility because they weren't practicing or playing their sport because things were locked down. So do some things, you know, in your backyard or wherever where you're cutting a bit more and shuttling because, you know, that's not an overused quality that uh, we have to worry about right now. If anything, we have to get you ready. Yeah. I, I like what you said, Derek, there. It reminds me of an anecdote I had, um, back when I was at Cal, I had, um, I worked with tennis and one of the, the fastest tennis player I ever worked with. Also, that reminds me, tennis reminds me of you, what you said on, um, that other little zoom call we were on a few weeks ago with like, Charlie would just train them, the tennis players with linear speed, because that's what they weren't typically getting. They were just, everything was side to side. So let's give them what you aren't getting. And uh, this player, it was the course of, I think, two years. He came to me one, at one point and said, I just don't feel fast on the court. Um, and then we kind of like w- looked back through the last two years. And this is a kid who hadn't lifted, touched a weight before his experience in college. And he had gotten stronger. And w- I think we really deduced it to the, it, we, we hadn't, uh, we, I would typically run those guys tempo in the, in the off season. Like we do six 200s. And they actually really liked that. That was, that was a group that liked that. And this kid, thrived off that like he loved it like you know emotionally just loved that kind of rhythm to his running i'm sure he would have been just fine with short sprints too running 40s or whatever but we kind of took it back to he probably needed to do and i think he did that stuff before his time at cal too and we took it back to he just needed to kind of get that back to doing that a little bit um just to get his almost overall speed just because it was like it's what he wasn't getting but it's also the thing that made his engine go uh he loved that linear like you know submaximal or even maximally would like but that was that made me think of that anecdote yeah and and if he's running repeat 200s and you know it doesn't have to be full out but his velocity is probably higher than anything that happens on Mm -hmm. the tennis court right there's just no way you can there's no way you can get to that distance because the court is so confined so you know maybe that helped too you gotta be real fast over 10 15 yards on the tennis court to get up to the speed you're running a even if the 200 is only 27 seconds, you're still like your 10 meter split still a little bit faster probably than most people are going to get up to at any stint on a tennis court. Yep. So I found that interesting. Okay. Don't have a lot of time left. Um, so I want to get into some specifics, nuts and bolts, always like talking about this stuff. Um, so first maybe let's go into volumes and like how it might fit into a week. We could talk track just because I think that's simple, but I'd like to touch on team maybe a little bit. Um, and then Derek, I'd love to get more into like your, the creativity reviews, like you said, doing medicine ball stuff in between. I think that could be cool too, for athletes too, who, you know, if you don't want to put the stigma on it and maybe they want to enjoy, I don't know, there's a lot of things there, but maybe let's talk about, um, just volumes first. Cause obviously the Clyde Hart, just Ryan, like you said, those crazy volumes and like probably loads of like high school track athletes are getting across the country or even conditioning for average, you know, team sport athletes when they do conditioning is probably 
it can be crazy, right? So where do you guys start when saying, hey, I'm going to assign tempo volumes um, and intensities and, and those things? So I start really low um, because you have to recall that I'm not doing, unlike your situation in a university, which you obviously have uh, the 22 hours they're away from us, right? Uh, you know, it's a bigger factor than it would be under the the watchful eye of hopefully a good parent who isn't giving their kids alcohol at 15 years old and having kids over till three o'clock in the morning, but that's a whole nother story. But uh, anyway, you know, we, we usually do that on a Tuesday and Monday tends to be our, whatever I would call my key performance indicator workout. So if they're a short to long sprinter or a long, you know, like a long sprinter, 400, 800, we're going to have that workout on Monday, be that high intensities, big recoveries, all that kind of stuff. And then on a Tuesday, when I start out, they're pretty tired and, and worn out from that first day. So you have to be careful. And so we use very small. So my returners, we're talking 600 meters. So, you know, that's that's a small, small volume of, of running and maybe 500 meters for the rookies, you know, and that could be just hundreds on the minute, you know. And then from there, I have gotten all the way up to like 14 repeat 200s, I know, which would blow people's Ooh. minds. But again, I know it's brutal, but we don't get there often. And it's only with the kids that are continuing to show improvement. And then with addition to that, every four weeks, I cut the volume back by 10 or 20%. So a rep or two is getting sliced off on that recovery week. And then we climb up again. And then when we get out six weeks out, then it's just a decline of 10% all the way to the championship phase. Um, the effort level, again, depends on if they're a pusher or a puller type of sprinter. So if they're a pusher, you know, we're talking, they could be low percentage efforts of 70%. If they're a puller, we're talking 85% right away. Hmm. So push, pusher being that yeah, more muscle ahead. driven, right? Like just to, just before people that use a term that people are familiar with. So pusher, more muscle driven, more like that compressive, right? Correct. Quad dominant versus hamstring yeah. dominant, you know, tends to be the football guy, the rugby guy versus the fast soccer player type person, you know, the long lean body. And again, as Derek said, that's not always the case. You know, you can have kids of all shapes, sizes and colors that, you know, run whatever. And we use our testing to figure those things out. But that's kind of my starting point to just get me a template in which allows me to then scaffold what I'm doing. Um, but then as we move through and that's usually the one tempo workout a week, you know, now if we don't have a competition, there might be a second one on Friday and then we race model or we do what I call speed reserve work or speed endurance work specific to the event on that Saturday. So Monday would be a key performance indicator, tempo Tuesday, Wednesday, active recovery. Thursday would be another key performance indicator workout. But typically, if I'm in a high school setting with a lot of athletes, that's a maximum velocity acceleration based workout. Another tempo day on Friday if they don't have competition. And then Saturday, if they don't have a competition, it would be race modeling or special or speed endurance. The second tempo day typically is going to be shorter um, and less intensive than the first one. And again, just as we're getting through the week, I want to make sure that I'm being mindful of what I would consider the residual fatigue day to day to day. And then we, you know, we load it up for three to four weeks and then we unload on the fourth week, load it up even further. And that's kind of the progression that we do. And then the 85 percent 
changes because they get fitter, they get faster. And so the effort level and the meters per second will move up. The other thing I like to do is I try to run on grass surfaces on one of the tempos days and then on the track on the other. And then I also like to go clockwise and counterclockwise in the work when I do that, because at those speeds, I feel they're safe enough uh, at the percentage of effort to try to improve the body bilaterally as opposed to having this unilateral overload where we get that hamstring pull on that left leg because it's the one that's turning and, and then taking all that torsion. And uh, we reduce that quite a bit. And I feel like that helps. The other thing, I don't run tempo and spikes. I run in flats Yeah, uh, most of the time. And again, just to you know provide a different stimulus, a different foot contact and recovery to those tissues below the knee. Yeah, I like the... I, my my tempo i would start with just like three 200s like it's just it's just so crazy how people are just like like work like just let's bust into eight like the first eight 200s the first day or whatever i mean it's just everything coming up slowly i think is very underrated and people don't talk about that enough right i mean you have days to go fast to so use those mm-hmm. days to go fast but on the supportive measure it's a supportive measure you don't need an overload of poison. You need the right amount of poison to create the response you want and make sure that they're on the up and up and you get that extra day of work. If you do too much, then you blow up the rest of the week. And so I always err on the side of lower is better, but still doing the purpose of tempo. Yeah, I know you and Tony Holler have debated, but I know that's a term you guys can both agree with this. Everything is a poison, especially at too much dosage. So uh, before Derek, you go, I just was curious, Ryan, you know, you said the the muscle dominant 70 percent, the elastic and those who at 85. I mean, 85 would fall outside of that, you know, um, like low tempo. That's in like the middle tempo range. Like any thoughts with that? I mean, you you so you aren't trying to really stick with those brackets specifically. It's kind of, a you know, fits with your more your whole system type vibe. Yeah, you know, when you know the rules, you break the rules. And for me, uh, being a program that wants to be really, really good at the 400 meters, the 300s, the 4x2 and the 4x4, I've got a lot of events that fit this area. And so as my tempo workout morphs, it starts out as it's a buffering workout. You know, we're building that waste, clearing that waste, improving the body's ability to buffer it and being comfortable with being uncomfortable. As we move through, then the workout changes to being the back end 200 pace of a all out 400 so that that's repeatable in a two day invitational because our state championship is two days in a row. And I want the athletes to be able to repeat that effort in a practice because they have to repeat it within a within a within a track meet. Then as we start to slice the volume away and we increase the uh, time in between the the recoveries in between it becomes a special endurance or not special endurance sorry a speed reserve or a speed endurance workout which then simulates early in the week a two-day back-to-back effort because conference isn't two days districts isn't two days sectionals isn't two days but before the coronavirus the state championship was two days. So what I'm trying to do is bridge the gap of what they're not getting in competition until the very last meet of the year within my practices. So that's kind of why I'm doing and how I'm doing it. Got it. All right, Derek, what do you got for us? I'll they'll do more of the team sport yeah. uh, example. And, and if I'm working, say, with American football, you know, I might do, I might go as low as like 30 meters or 30 yards uh, for the big guys, like do a 30, drop down, do 10 push ups, you know, walk across, do another 30, do some squats or something. So I'll try to, you know, again, it's more of a 
general preparatory phase approach where like keep them constantly moving don't have anything excessive and like you guys said like you know four by you know maybe start with like four by 50 or six by 30 times two um and then just throw a bunch of other drills and exercises in there as well just to kind of hit them on a general fitness level and that may go if, if you're like a 300 pounder 250 to 300 pounder we may stay at 30 50 yards uh, and just build up volume and it may start at you know 200 yards for the first session and we may go as high as 800 to 1000 yards per session in an off-season period whereas the skill players we might start at you know 400 and or 600 and work all the way up to about 2000 meters per session but same sort of thing adding different with sports i want to add different elements so it's just not considered like hey we're running now because unfortunately in team sports running is associated with we did something wrong mm. right so it's punitive so as long as i make it fun uh and interesting and varied up and it's not excessive um you know would i run you know segments of 200 300 400 not really it doesn't you know maybe for a soccer player like i mm -hmm. said the midfielder example where you have to build up volume um or, or a specific rugby player but most of the time I'm, I'm pretty lenient with those distances and i even like you know as part of a general preparatory phase is like throw the med ball run onto it throw the med ball run onto it doing segments with throws combined um because it does take their mind off the running they're just chasing oh, yeah. a ball um and it's an easy way to build up volume and you know qualities upper body qualities and um it just kind of sets the tone for um you know a whole bunch of different activities that we can start separating out later but i like the idea that it just works on general work capacity and gets them fit and then okay we'll go do our running over here or we'll do our, our med ball circuits after you finish your runs um and and just make it more interesting that way but i'm, I'm you know I, I am very sensitive about like how are they going to perceive this? Are they going to perceive it as having a function or are they going to perceive it as like, oh, they're just making us run again. And then, you know, when you work with uh, head coaches in sports, you want to make sure they understand your approach too and, and try to convince them to get away from punitive running and maybe be more strategic within their practices. Okay, we're going to run now. And it's not because you guys, you know, we're offside on, you know, four plays. It's because, uh, we have to work on these physiological qualities to help you within your game in the third and fourth quarter. So as long as the, I think you just have to be transparent with stuff with the athletes where I think some coaches have been taught and they, they learn from whoever coached them that, you know, you have to be hard and you have to be sneaky and you have to be, you have to keep them off balance all the time. It's like, no, you don't like, I mean, that's, that's going to happen through the course of the sports specific stuff anyways the scrimmages and the one-on-ones and all that so let's let's be a little more scientific with the other stuff with the physiological stuff yeah i i like what you said there with just the ball throwing because i i think we've all seen it as coaches as the athlete who just if you say go run 10 200s or something like that they're you know just gonna see people like oh like ugh. like especially a team sport athlete i mean maybe there's some there's some 400 runners out there who certainly like that but it's to, to do as soon as you flip the switch and make it a game or just give them something to distract from the, what they're actually doing. Just everything changes. And I've always definitely taken that to heart, even the point where in for my track athletes uh, a long time ago, I would have them do a game like in the early offseason. We just play a game once a week. And I bet you they got actually way more quality running in some of them than if we actually did a tempo day for what for those purposes. So I totally agree with you on that. Yeah, it's it's so important because I think 
you have to like as a track athlete i was always thinking about well how is this going to help me and so when we had to run you're like okay i'm a track athlete i run so if we're if i'm going to run the 400 meters if somebody threw some like 200s or 300s or 400s or even some 600s you're like oh that makes sense but if you're doing that for a team sport athlete like what the heck am i doing (laughs) here like this has nothing to do with anything i do on the court or on the on the field so make it relatable and then you're going to get that compliance and that enthusiasm around it awesome sounds good well hey i this time just flew by guys i actually had some other questions i wanted to ask you um but i know we're a little bit short on time and it, it is a sunday so hey i thank you guys so much um shoot i feel like i'm gonna have some emails to send you after this whole show is over but i appreciate you guys' insights and inputs on this whole thing um you know i'm even though it's an old topic like i think what's old is always new it's always nice to learn from these these staples that have been around so um you know, I don't know if you guys have any closing comments or anything before we get out of here on that type of that idea, but uh, I do appreciate you guys' time. Just, just know what you're doing and understand the context, I think, is very important. Before you're willing to criticize or cut someone or to reject someone's ideas, I think you need to understand their environment, their situation, and what is the competitive ask of the sport that makes them choose the choices that they make for training. And I think if you do that, then you can really get better at figuring out who really understands what they're doing and should be spoken with. And those who may not really have a clue before you start making lobbing criticism or denying the rationality and the logic of their choices. Yeah. And and I think in this day and age, you know, we have access to all this information and, and some of the information out there comes with a cost. So the people are selling things to you. And if you're selling something, you have to make it very, um, you know, very specific and very focused so that it differentiates you. So I think as a consumer going, looking for training methods, you really have to look at things a little more broadly and not go, Oh, well, this guy's doing this guy's saying this. So I'm just going to do that. It's like, well, take a look at it. Listen to what Ryan has to say. Listen to what other people have to say from different sports. And then you have to come up with your own conclusions. It's it's so easy just to buy into a system and go, this is what I'm doing. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm one of those guys. Um, so, you know, you have to think. All right. Fantastic. Well, hey, thank you guys again. I really appreciate it, especially on a Sunday here. So take care. We'll uh, talk to you guys later. And thank you again. that does it for another show thanks for being here if you enjoyed it you can leave us a rating or review on itunes stitcher or whatever you're listening to we'd really appreciate it we will see you guys next week with another great guest